So before we get to Buddha nature, we got to see the situation that we're in right now, which is samsara. You know, uh, we have all these unsatisfactory conditions and we have the causes for them, our wrong views and afflictions and, you know, the polluted karma that we've created. So that's what we're talking about at the beginning. Yeah, we have to see where we're at and what we are right now before we can really understand what nirvana is or before we can even make sense of uh, visualizing the, the different deities and reciting mantras and so on. So all this material, I think, is quite helpful for setting the stages. Okay, so that's where we'll be starting today, just with the, the first truth. And uh, before we do that, I always like to um, sit quietly with people. You know, if you've been running around a little bit, we can, you know, sit, clear the mind, and uh, then we'll set our motivation for the teaching. Okay, so lower your eyes. And become aware of your breath. Just the gentle flow of your breath in and out. So you can focus your attention either at the nostrils and feel the sensation of the air there or at your belly and feel the rise and fall of your belly as you inhale and exhale. If you get distracted at some point, just notice that and bring your attention back home to the breath. We'll do that for a couple of minutes, let the mind settle. And then let's generate our motivation. And expand the mind and consider that right now at this very moment, although it's a comparatively small number of us who are together, that this universe is filled with countless sentient beings. each of whom 
is undergoing their own experience in samsara. They all want happiness. They don't want pain. And yet obscured by ignorance, wrong views and mental afflictions in their search for happiness. They fairly often, almost always, create the causes for pain and misery, or at least for continued rebirth in samsara. So we happen to be very fortunate having a precious human life, having met the Dharma and having affinity for it. You deciding to use our time today to actually learn the Buddhist teachings and to put them into practice. So just having a mind with that kind of interest is already an incredible benefit. Um, Plus we have the circumstances to make use of that interest and actually learn and practice. So seeing that we're actually just like all the other beings, wanting happiness and not suffering. And yet, at least right now, we have this advantage of being able to learn and practice the Buddha's teachings. Then let's cultivate an attitude of love, wanting other beings to be happy, compassion, wanting them to be free of suffering. And take some responsibility for actualizing that. and being of service and benefit to these countless beings. So the best way to do that is to purify our own mind and gain all the excellent qualities to become a fully awakened Buddha. And so with that as our motivation, we will Share the Dharma today and tomorrow. And really use it for a very long-term, far-reaching goal. Then open your eyes and come out of your meditation. Okay, so 
This is the book if you haven't seen it before. And the cover has uh, the Lord of Death. This guy. This is only part of, of the Wheel of Life. and But he's holding the Wheel of Life. And the Wheel of Life describes in uh, artistic form how we are reborn in samsara and then implying also how we can be free of it. So it, the book just goes through the whole description of the wheel of life uh, later on when we talk about the 12 links. But this at least shows you what it, you know, the picture is what we're going to be talking about, okay? In one form or another. So we're going to start off today talking about uh, the three kinds of dukkha, okay? So the first truth of the four truths is the truth of dukkha. So we're going to learn what it is, okay? Now, uh, I said we're going to learn what it is, but actually, we this is our life experience. So what the Buddha did is, is basically just describe our life experience to us. Some people, when they hear this, feel incredible relief, like, oh, okay, finally somebody's being honest about what life and you know, what our life is about. Other people say, oh, I don't want to hear about this stuff. I want to hear about something that's going to make me happy. But, uh, you know, if, if we can be honest about our present situation, then we can, you know, begin to progress and to create the causes for happiness. Okay. It's like I said, I'll read and then I'll comment a little bit. So when dukkha is translated as suffering, people easily have the wrong idea that refers only to pain. But unsatisfactory experiences are more than that. Yeah, you can have a nice life and everything is not totally satisfactory in your life. Okay. So in a previous chapter, um, you know, we talked briefly about the three kinds of dukkha, and now we'll explain them more in depth. Okay, so this is what our life is about. So there's three kinds of dukkha. The first one's called the dukkha of pain. And that is the manifest physical and mental pain that all sentient beings recognize as suffering and pain as undesirable. Okay, you don't need to be a Buddhist. You don't need to be a philosopher. You know, even the bugs don't like this level of dukkha. You know, it's, it's pain. Okay, so it's the manifest physical and mental pain that all beings recognize as suffering. It includes suffering from heat, cold, hunger, thirst, stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and so forth. Okay, so all of the beings have this. Okay, so it's physical. It can be physical or mental suffering. How many of you have more mental suffering in your life than physical? 
Yeah. How many of you have more physical suffering than mental? Yeah. It's amazing. It's mental suffering mostly, isn't it? Yeah. So physically, I mean, we have things very nice, and yet our mind is like miserable sometimes and dissatisfied and complaining and, yeah. Okay. But the dukkha of pain, that's the first one. So the dukkha of change, this is the second one. So it's subtler and more difficult to identify. So it includes what worldly people call happiness. So why is the happiness we experience when we eat a good meal, hear music we like, or experience other sensual pleasures unsatisfactory? You know, when you go out with your friends, when you have a good talk with somebody, or you have a nice dinner or see a good movie, why do we say that that's dukkha, that that's unsatisfactory? You know, we've been taught that that's, it, that that's pleasure and to have as much as, of it as we possibly can. Yeah. So why does Buddha say that's unsatisfactory? Well, if these pleasures were truly pleasurable, the more we did them, the happier we would be. In other words, these activities will, would continually bring increased pleasure the more we did them. However, that's not what happens. So if we keep eating, we feel ill. If food were really the cause of happiness, the more we ate, the happier we would be. Okay? When you start to eat, you know, it's real happiness because the suffering of hunger goes down. But at the same time you're starting to eat, the suffering of being full starts from very small. And if you keep eating pretty soon, it's like, oh, God, you know, like these people who do these contests to see how many hot dogs they can eat. Oh, my God, what a way to torture yourself. Yeah, they want their name in the Guinness Book of Records for being able to eat the most hot dogs. You know, and if that, if eating hot dogs brought them real happiness, they wouldn't get a stomach ache afterwards, you know, but afterwards they're like, you know, destroyed by it. Okay, so jogging after a long day sitting at work initially feels wonderful, but after a while we are tired and we want to sit down. And then we sit down and after a while we're restless sitting down and we want to go out jogging again or at least take a walk. Yeah. When we're lonely, seeing a friend initially alleviates the feeling of isolation and makes us happy. But if we stay with that person hour after hour after hour, we get tired, bored and want to be alone. So no matter how much you love somebody, no matter how much you care about them, if your wrist were chained, chained to their wrist and you were always around them, or even you weren't chained together, you never had any time to yourself, 
you were always there. After a while, it's like, can I be alone, please? You know, I love you, but get away from me. Okay. So that doesn't always bring, you know, happiness, not long lasting happiness. When we don't have a high status job, we want one. But after we're promoted, we are initially happy, but later resent having to work longer hours. True, isn't it? It's like, I want to get promoted. You get promoted, then you have the pleasure of working 12-hour days. Yeah, sometimes longer. So Aryadeva, yeah, he was one of uh, Nagarjuna's disciples. So he said, pleasure, when it increases, is seen to change into pain. But pain, when it increases, does not likewise change into pleasure. Mm -hmm. So examining the experiences we call happiness, we see that they are not true happiness. They don't last. They feel good for a short while, and then they turn into overt discomfort or even pain. For this reason, they are unsatisfactory in nature, and the Buddha, with compassion, directs us towards a more satisfying joy, the peace of liberation and awakening. Okay, so what this is, this kind of happiness, is we call it happiness because, like I was saying before, this when regarding eating, the suffering of of hunger is there. When you start to eat, the suffering of hunger starts to decrease. At the same time, the suffering of being too full is increasing. So that's what that feeling of being too full, we initially call pleasure, but it's not in pleasure. It's not pleasurable by nature because if it were, we would keep getting feeling more and more of it. But actually, the more we eat, the more it changes into discomfort. Okay. So what we're getting at is that none of the things we usually grasp at for happiness are actually going to bring us any kind of lasting happiness and joy. Yeah. It's difficult to kind of say, yeah, that's really true, because we've put, been putting our whole life effort into getting this kind of happiness, constantly getting frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned, but still keeping on doing those things, looking for the, the thing that's going to bring the ultimate happiness, because we don't know of anything else. Yeah. And it's the Buddha who says, hey, you're running around seeking, seeking grade F happiness. And there's grade triple A happiness. It's, you know, it's called liberation or full awakening, Buddhahood, nirvana. Why don't you look for that kind of happiness instead of just 
going around and around, you know, trying to get oil out of sand. It's not going to work. Okay, so, so that's the second kind. Then the third kind of dukkha is called the pervasive dukkha of conditioning. So that's even subtler and more difficult to identify. And it refers to our psychophysical aggregates. In other words, our bodies, and then that the body is one aggregate called form. And then we have four mental uh, aggregates, feelings, discriminations, miscellaneous factors, and consciousnesses. Okay. So the result uh, of our previous samsaric rebirth, the, the result of the karma that we created before, is our aggregates, our body and mind that we get this life. Okay. And so the, the results of karma that we created before, but our present body and mind is also the basis for our present dukkha. And when that karma ripens, you know, and as physical and mental pain that we experience in life. And then we react to that, that physical and mental pain with more afflictions, with more wrong views, we create more polluted karma, and then that creates the cause for more rebirth in samsara. So that's why it's called cyclic existence, okay? So although our bodies and minds may not experience pain at this very moment, with the slightest change in circumstance, they easily will. So we may say, I feel fine now, you know, everything's great. But if we were to sit here for two, three, four, five, six hours without getting up, you'd want to get up, wouldn't you? Yeah. Okay. So our aggregates are very susceptible to the dukkha of pain and the dukkha of, um, of change. And by reacting to the pain and pleasure in this lifetime with afflictions such as attachment, anger, and confusion, we again create more karmic causes to take another samsaric rebirth where we will again experience all three types of dukkha. Okay, so let's say, uh, you know, I, I want happiness. So I go out to eat and I order my favorite dish and the waiter brings it, but it's burnt, okay? And it's, it's, it's completely, you know, I don't want to eat it. So I get angry, yeah, and I tell the waiter, you know, this, you know, nah, 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 go tell the cook, you're totally incompetent, go make it again. We create a scene in the restaurant, okay? The people we're with want to go like this because we're creating, we're angry and creating a scene. And, uh, you know, eventually we get the food that we want, 
But, you know, it just doesn't taste like it should because we're, you know, we're still quite angry. So we create that negative karma of, uh, you know, of harsh words, what we said to the cook and what we said to the to the waiter. Yeah, that karma can ripen in terms of another rebirth or in terms of what we experience in a future life. And then in that next rebirth or in that next experience, something else is wrong. Yeah. And then that time we get, uh, you know, it's like we get very greedy and, you know, we want more, we want better and we're unsatisfied. So we're just going to work, get more and more and more and more and more. And we start cheating people, you know, and lying to get what we want. And in the process, this is in our next life of doing that, you know, we're lying, we're cheating, we're creating more more karma that will then throw another rebirth and influence what we experience in future rebirths. Okay. (laughs) So these three kinds of dukkha are very much linked together. Yeah. Dharma Kirti uh, says, because they are the basis of faults or dukkha, and also because they are under the power of polluted causes, they are called dukkha. Okay. At present, we are under the illusion that happiness can be attained with this body, aren't we? Yeah. We cling to the hope that scientists will discover and root out the causes for depression, unhappiness, disease, substance abuse, aging, and death. We look to science, you know, as if science is going to come up with a solution that, you know, can prevent aging and death. Good luck. They... (laughs) You know, they have this science now of cryogenics where they freeze your whole body in the hope that they freeze your body now. So in the hope that in the future, the scientists will know how to uh, make that body come alive again. But at least your body will be frozen until then. So, uh, you know, people have their whole body frozen. I think Walt Disney did. Yeah. And uh, and then some people, it's really expensive. Yeah. Uh, then some people just have their head frozen, and you know, waiting for science to discover how to put you back together, like Humpty Dumpty, and make you live. But it, it's futile, isn't it? Yeah. Well, scientific endeavors have remedied much suffering. They cannot stop the basic causes of suffering because our body itself is unsatisfactory by nature. We have a body that experiences pain. That's the nature of the body, isn't it? Everybody's body is like that. We have a body that gets old, that eventually dies. That's just the nature of the body. Yeah. It's, it doesn't take anything else 
acting upon it to make it good, get older. The body just naturally does that. Yeah. At pre okay, let's see. No matter how much a cook tries to slow the disintegration of rotten vegetables or covers them with delicious sauce, making a tasty dish out of them is impossible. Similarly, once we have taken a body and mind under the control of afflictions and karma, we are set up to experience dukkha. For this reason, our aggregates are considered unsatisfactory by their very nature. So our problem is that we don't accept that. Okay? The more we can accept what our body is and what our present mind is, then the less suffering we'll have from them. But one of the reasons for our, our experience of mental suffering is we don't accept that things are transitory, that our body ages and dies, that the people we love are not going to be here forever. Yeah. So we're, we're constantly fighting reality and wanting it to be different. And that exhausts us and uh, causes a lot of inner turmoil. Yeah. The more we can accept things, you know, as they actually are, then the more we're capable of dealing with them in a wise way. And then we don't get so bummed out. So here's another quote from Arya Deva. He says, the body, however long one spends, will not in itself become pleasurable. Okay, now I'm looking at the people online. Most of us have been alive for a number of years. Yeah, so we know this body well. Have you ever, has your body grown more and more pleasurable as you've lived longer? No. Yeah. Do you try and make your body pleasurable? Yes. Yeah. Are you ever successful in making your body be and do what you want it to do or be? No. Yeah. I mean, all of us, if we had a chance, I'm sure we would change how we looked. We would change our, the shape of our body in one way or another. You know, already, what do we do? We change our hair. You know, you color our hair. We use beauty products. You know, the guys who don't have hair try and put something on to get hair. You know, it's like, you know, the body is not naturally going in that direction. We're, we're fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. You know how it is? How sometimes... Yeah. Do you ever look at your arm and it's like, that looks like my grandma's arm. Yeah. You ever that? 
That skin, it's all wrinkled. That looks like grandma's arm. Oh, I'm as old as grandma was when I was a little kid. No wonder my arm looks like that. But we don't feel that old. How did my skin get like that? You know? I better get some of that, you know, special lotion and put it on and you know, it'll change it all. <laughs> right. Huh? Okay, so Aryadeva continues to say that the body's nature can be overruled by other factors is improper. The high have mental suffering for the common, it comes from the body. Day by day, both kinds of dukkha overwhelm people in the world. Yeah. So we were talking about COVID before. Some people are suffering physically from COVID. Some people, because they can't go out, they can't socialize, they have a lot of mental suffering. Yeah. Even they're not ill, but the mental suffering comes. When contemplating the three types of dukkha and the disadvantages of cyclic existence, reflect that you have experienced the you have experienced these since beginningless time. So our samsara, there's no beginning. Yeah? Every life had a preceding life, had a preceding life, have a preceding life. In Buddhism, we do not talk about an absolute beginning before which there was nothing. And we don't talk about there being a creator who out of nothing created something. Instead, we just say everything had its own cause that came before it. And there is no beginning, including to our rebirths. So these meditations on dukkha are not idle speculation being repeatedly subjected to the miseries of cyclic existence is serious. In the Tears Sutta, the Buddha gave a series of vivid examples illustrating the length of time afflictions and karma have bound us in cyclic existence. So here's a quote from one of the Pali Suttas. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course of samsara, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, you have experienced the death of a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, loss through illness. You have experienced this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. The stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and migrating 
hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time, you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. It is enough to experience revulsion towards all formations, enough to become dispassionate towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Okay, so it's quite a sobering quote, what the Buddha is saying, you know. But like I said before, we have to clearly see our situation if we're going to be able to change it. It's like if you're imprisoned, yeah, but you look around and you say, this prison, you know, it's, it's kind of cool, you know. They have concrete blocks and cement walkways and fluorescent lighting. And, you know, I have my own room in solitary confinement. It's not so bad here. If you look at prison that way, are you going to try and get out of it? No. Yeah, if you think prison is a pleasure palace, you're going to be content in it. So that's why the Buddha talks to us in this way, so that we can actually see what our samsara is about, so that we will want to be free of it and, you know, create the causes for a lasting kind of peace and happiness. Yeah, the Buddha does not teach us this so that we can become sad and miserable and full of despair. We can do that all by ourselves. Buddha doesn't need to teach us how to be sad and full of despair. Yeah, Buddha is teaching us this so that he can point us on the way to the actual freedom and peace of, that comes through spiritual realizations. Well, such a, a message may initially be unpleasant to hear. The Buddha says it with compassion so that we can act now while we have the opportunity to remedy the situation and free ourselves from such misery. So I, I have to introduce you to my roommate who just walked across the screen. This is my tree. She's named after Maitreya Buddha. Okay. Uh, and she'll occasionally walk across. You'll see her tail. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now the next section is about feelings, afflictions, and dukkha. Yes, we're talking about life as a cat too. Yeah. Each of the three types of dukkha is associated with a specific feeling. The dukkha of pain with painful feelings. The dukkha of change with pleasant feelings. Because when we initially engage in certain activities or have particular possessions, we feel happy. And the pervasive dukkha of conditioning is associated with neutral feelings because all beings in samsara experience this dukkha, even when they are not actively feeling pain or pleasure. 
So we will explore this more in the practice of the four establishments of mindfulness, which come in volume four, the next book. Okay. So these feelings in turn prompt afflictions. Anger easily arises towards painful physical and mental feelings. Doesn't it? Yeah, when you have pain, yeah, either whether it's physical or mental pain, do you, are you inclined towards angry? Anger? Do you complain? Yeah, are you annoyed? Are you irritated? Yeah. Do you want to say like, why me? I don't want this. Okay. So anger comes very easily in relationship to unpleasant feelings. Attachment, clinging attachment, holding, wanting, greed. Okay. It manifests when pleasurable feelings are experienced. We crave these feelings, do not want them to cease, and cling to the objects that seem to cause them. Okay, so something looks, you know, that granola we got. You have granola in, in Australia, right? Yeah, that granola, that is fantastic. That's going to, it makes me feel so good when I eat it for breakfast. Yeah. And then you run out of the granola and you've forgotten to buy more and you're left with cornflakes. Okay. But I want granola for breakfast. If I have to eat cornflakes, ugh, you know, I'm going to be miserable the whole day. We've, I mean, these are stupid examples, but... They're true, aren't they? I mean, it doesn't matter how big or small any kind of suffering is. We don't want any of it. Yeah. And we'll complain if we have it. At least I complain. Maybe you people don't complain as much as I do. You know, I, I'm, if you ever need somebody to complain, ask me. I will happily do it for you. Free of charge. It's my hobby. Okay. Uh, ignorance increases when neutral feelings are present because we hold the aggregates as permanent when in fact they are momentary. So we may have a neutral feeling, not pleasant, not unpleasant, but we think it, it's going to stay like that. Yeah, we assume that we'll never experience pain later, but we're always on the edge of experiencing pain. Yeah. Under the influence of these afflictions, we create karma. While attachment may fuel actions that lead to rebirth in any of the six classes of beings, so as gods, demigods, human beings, animals, hungry ghosts, or hell beings, okay? Attachment can, can for, you know, motivate the actions that result in our being born in those, in all six realms. 
okay? Um, anger makes us miserable in this life and creates the causes for unfortunate rebirth. So anger never creates the causes for an upper rebirth. It always creates the causes for lower rebirth. Ignorance keeps us bound in cyclic existence, unable to help ourselves, let alone help others. So recognizing pleasant feelings as dukkha enables us to release craving and clinging to them. And as a result, attachment subsides. So when you have a, a pleasant feeling, if we just say, oh, that's nice, but we don't get into, I want more, I want better, I don't want this to ever end. If we don't get into that, we just say, okay, it's a pleasant feeling. I enjoy it while it is. Then when it disappears, we don't get unhappy. What makes us unhappy is when we get attached to the pleasant feeling or attached to the person or object that we think is the cause of that feeling. Yeah, that the attachment is what makes us so miserable. Because when we're attached, I want it, I have to have it, then we're, we're just completely dissatisfied. Yeah. And whatever we get never cuts the mark. You know, it's never good enough. Accepting that by nature our bodies are unsatisfactory makes it easier to avoid anger or anxiety with respect to painful feelings. You know, so when we just accept, you know, this body is made of flesh and bones, it, has, it ex can experience pain. Why am I so surprised when it experiences pain? Yeah. Why am I so surprised when it gets sick? Why do we say, why me? Yeah. One, one of my friends just got cancer. And he's saying, well, why shouldn't it be me? Yeah, he's a Dharma practitioner. So he's able to say, why shouldn't it be me who gets cancer? instead of why me, as if the universe is unjust. So when there, it, there comes an acceptance of our situation, then we suffer much less. We still deal with the situation. It doesn't mean we just, you know, let our health go, go down the drain. We deal with it. But when we're not attached you know, it, 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 we don't experience so much unhappiness. Okay. Seeing that neutral feelings are transient in nature diminishes ignorance. In this way, although the three feelings may arise, we stop responding to them with attachment, anger, and ignorance, thus reducing the karma created by afflictions, or should I say reducing the afflictions that create more polluted karma, okay? So I'll give you just a, a, a personal example. Um, last year, my 
uh, hip and whole legs started hurting. And it, it's, it was hurting really, really bad, making it difficult to walk. And it took several months before uh, the, you know, the doctor said, oh, this looks like uh, arthritis. Okay. And so I, ha I was, had a hip replacement surgery. And before the surgery, they did these classes, you know, to tell us about what was going to happen. And so uh, the person who did the class said, after you have the surgery, you're going to experience pain. You know, they'll give you painkillers, but you will experience pain. And if you want to recover and really learn to walk well again and get all your other functions back again, you're going to have to exercise and, you know, you'll have to deal with the pain. So I was warned. I was prepared for it. Okay. Then after the surgery, yes, there was pain. Yeah. And, you know, some, it was very interesting. I had never experienced pain like this before. There was one kind of pain that was hot and searing, another kind of pain that was achy, um, you know, very different kinds of pain. And I had to go to physical therapy twice a week. And I had to do the exercises at home, you know, even when I, in between. And some of it, I mean, it was painful, uh, but I was warned. So I accepted it. And I also knew that by doing these exercises, eventually, you know, my leg would heal and the joint would heal. And, you know, I had heard from other people who had had the surgery, you know, that it, it takes about a whole year to recover completely, but you're almost as good as you were before. Okay. So I just kept doing that. Uh, some of the other, a couple of the nuns at the Abbey would come and exercise with me or help me to exercise, or at the very beginning, they would, you know, walk with me when I was on my walker, kind of inching around um, to make sure I didn't fall over. Uh, but, you know, I just kept at it. And sure enough, I'm like five and a half months out from the surgery now. And, you know, hardly ever do I experience pain and I can go walking in the forest and you know, I feel really good. So, and, and I wasn't depressed this whole time after the surgery. Instead, I, I just focused on the kindness of the surgeon, the physical therapist, the nurses, the friends at the Abbey who took care of me. And, you know, you shift your mind and you, you accept the pain, you shift your mind so that you see kindness, and then your whole experience changes, okay? And I'm saying this as somebody who likes to complain, who, you know, if I hadn't met the Buddha Dharma and had a hip surgery, I would have been like, oh, such an obnoxious patient, you know? Oh, this hurts so much. Why does it hurt so much? Can't they make it so it doesn't hurt? 
Why is my body like this? You know, I would have been totally miserable and made everybody around me miserable. Okay. But, you know, my own experience is you accept what's happening and then you shift your attention to see kindness and it changes your whole experience. Yeah. So we'll see how I do next time I have a health problem. Okay. <laughs> Remind me, people at the Abbey, if I start grumbling, okay? Okay. So next in the book is a reflection. So the reflections, uh, they're spaced throughout the book. So they work as good points for doing analytic meditation or for doing contemplation, okay? So the I'll just read through the reflections here, and then you can contemplate them uh, afterwards, after the session. So if one, think of a situation in which you felt happy. Observe how attachment arises for the pleasant feeling, as well as for the people, objects, or situation that seem to cause it. Okay, then observe the actions you do motivated by attachment. How do they cause problems in this life? When you're seeking to hang on to whatever it is that caused you pleasure or to get more of it. How do, uh, how do those actions create karma for suffering in future lives? And think of the kind of rebirth those actions could propel. Then three, contemplate the pleasant feelings are unsatisfactory in nature because they do not last and degenerate into pain if we keep doing the action over time. After contemplating the disadvantages of the dukkha of change, Observe your attachment subside, okay? As you let go of of seeking happiness from things that are impermanent, yeah, your attachment subsides. And as your mind becomes more balanced, just enjoy that peaceful feeling from having a, a mind that isn't clutching and clinging and wanting and craving and dissatisfied. Yeah. It's, it's really a relief. And then four, while this, while this peace is not the tranquility of nirvana, it does give us knowledge that relinquishing attachment at any level makes the mind more peaceful. So we, when we're unhappy and we want something, we think the problem is that we don't have the object we want, or we're not with the person we want to be with, or that person doesn't want to be with us, or whatever it is, okay? Actually, that's not the cause of the misery. The actual cause of the misery is our clinging attachment to that person, to that object, to that situation, such that we don't want to be separated. We want more. 
and we can't get more. We don't want to be separated, but the thing, the situation's impermanent by its very nature. Okay. So the problem is, is always the affliction. And if we can work with the affliction, the uh, disturbing emotion in our own mind, then we can really find a way to be more peaceful in this life and not create so much negative karma for future lives. Okay, now the next um, section is called the six disadvantages of cyclic existence. So if you like lists, we just did the three kinds of dukkha. This is the six disadvantages of cyclic existence. Next comes the eight uh, unsatisfactory conditions. They have lots of lists here, but it's quite helpful. So not only is samsara unsatisfactory in nature, it is also bereft of advantages. Nagarjuna's uh, letter to a friend speaks of six disadvantages of samsara. Okay, so as I we go through these, think in terms of your own life, if this applies to your life experience. Okay, so the first disadvantage, there is no security or certainty. We may work hard for a certain goal, but unexpected hindrances block our attaining it. We may live in a pleasant environment and suddenly be forced to leave. Our situation can change dramatically in a short period of time. Our relatives and friends change from one life to the next. In short, samsara lacks consistency and predictability. But that's what we want, isn't it? We want consistency and predictability. But that's not the nature of our lives. Yeah. Did you ever think, uh, two years ago, did you ever think that you would be living through a pandemic? Never entered our mind. Yeah. And, you know, then you think of the people, uh, we've had several natural catastrophes in the world. You know, you're living in your home, then a tornado comes through. All of a sudden, you don't have a house. I don't know, what do you call tornadoes in Australia? Are they called hurricanes? Are they called hurricanes? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They call these things different. Cyclones. Or cyclones. I think, actually, I think cyclones and hurricanes are the same thing. Tornadoes, maybe something. Anyway, the whole idea is your house has gone like this. Yeah. So no security or certainty. Second disadvantage of cyclic existence. We are never satisfied with what we are, what we do, or what we have. We always want more and better of whatever we find desirable. No matter what we have accomplished or how much we excel, we never feel good enough about ourselves. Isn't that true? Yeah, you work hard. You really try your best. 
you even have success and people congratulate you, but you still don't feel like you did enough. You still don't feel like you're good enough. Yeah. Constant dissatisfaction with ourselves. Third disadvantage is we die repeatedly, each time leaving behind everything and everyone we know. Everything we work so hard for during our life cannot come with us to the next life. Death naturally follows birth, and when we die, nothing from this life except our karmic seeds and our mental habits accompany us. So while we're alive, we work very hard to get a home, to get nice furnishings, to have a family, to have a vehicle, to have maybe a summer home, or at least to go on vacation to nice places. You know, we want a reputation. We want praise. We want, uh, you know, people to love us, people to like us. We want to be renowned for being a, a good person or a kind person or talented in a specific way. Yeah. And we work very hard to get this while we're alive. And when we die, none of it comes with us. None of it. Yeah. You work very hard to save money. And when you die, you go on and your money doesn't come with you. In fact, your relatives fight over it. It sounds funny, but it's true. It's really true. Yeah. So you work very hard and then everything stays here and you can't take any of it with you. And then, you know, then they have like, a, what do they call, like an estate sale. You know, all your relatives, they go through all your stuff. Yeah. All your pieces of paper, all your clothing drawers, all your, all your junk drawers. They clean out everything. They have a big estate sale. Other people come and rummage through everything. And there are your objects, your cherished objects that have so much sentimental value for you. Of course, you're dead. So who cares about them when you're dead? But they have so much sentimental value. And they're at least worth a million dollars because they remind you of your grandma and the time your whole family was harmonious. Da, 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 da. And now people are sitting bargaining over them, saying, you're charging so much for this piece of junk. You know, I'll give you $3 at most. And you're going, oh, but this is, you know, this was the little tinsel from the Christmas tree, you know, when I was five years old. And, you know, this is the wedding picture of my, my great, 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 great grandmother. And, you know, and none of these people value that stuff like we do. You know, to them, it's just junk. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. 
And they're all going to go through our stuff. And like, well, you're saving this. And you have this. You, you're a pack rat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fourth disadvantage. We are born in cyclic existence repeatedly with all the problems and struggles that exist in each life. Our samsara is beginningless, and unless we exert effort to attain liberation, it will be endless. So getting out of it is entirely in our hands. We have the aids of the Buddhism, but the aid of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, but we have to do something. Fifth disadvantage, we repeatedly change status from superior to inferior and vice versa. In one life, we may change social position, health, financial status, relationships, and so on. From one life to the next, we may go from the, the celestial realm to a hell realm, to a rebirth as an, a human or an animal. Okay, and even within this life, yeah, remember that when there was the uh, financial recession in 2008, you know, people were doing fine, then plunk, you know, their stock went down. Some people who were quite wealthy, all of a sudden, you know, they're not worth very much. Uh, things changed, you know, very, very quickly. And uh, we, we go up and down, even at your job, you know, one at, you're at one job and everybody thinks you're so intelligent and so creative and, you know, you're just smart as all get out. And then you go to another place and the people are saying, huh, you, you don't seem to know very much at all. You know, sit down and let me teach you. <laughs> so, you know, no consistent status. And then the sixth uh, disadvantage. We experience suffering alone. Others cannot experience it for us, no matter how much they love us. We are born alone and we die alone. Our feelings are felt by ourselves alone. Okay, while we may be inseparable from certain people during our lives, at death, separation is guaranteed. Yeah, unavoidable. So the Buddha did not point these disadvantages out so that we would become depressed. Rather, with compassion, he asked us to look closely at our experiences in cyclic existence and to see them for what they are. Knowing that we have the potential to be free from them, he then described their causes, the path to encounter them, and the resultant state of liberation. And again, there's a reflection. So these are points for you to contemplate after the talk. So first one, contemplate each of the six disadvantages of cyclic existence, making examples of them from your life. 
two, contemplate that they originate in ignorance and that it is possible to eliminate ignorance through cultivating the wisdom, realizing the emptiness of inherent existence. There's an antidote to the causes of our dukkha. Three, knowing that you have the potential to attain nirvana, generate a strong determination to be free from samsara and attain liberation or full awakening. Yeah, has to start with an intention, a determination. And four, use this firm and clear aspiration to inspire your dharma practice and clarify your priorities in life. And then five, observe that the eight worldly concerns become uninteresting when your sights are focused on higher aims, such as the true freedom of nirvana or full awakening. Okay, so when you're, you really have spiritual aims in your life, then the problems in this life are, you don't make such a big deal about them, yeah? They're there, but you have a higher purpose and meaning in your life. I can take maybe a couple of questions if you have them. There's a couple of questions in the chat line, Venerable. Okay, what do I, how do I open it? Okay, now I can read them to you. Oh, okay. One of them was in regard to pain. It said in one of your books where Boomi does not feel pain, how does the direct realization not feel physical pain? In, in the book, it says that when you achieve some of one of the boomies, you don't feel pain. Oh. How does direct realization lead to not feel? Okay. They say for bodhisattvas, yeah, that they have created so much uh, virtuous karma that there's no karma that ripens as physical pain. And their minds uh, have such virtuous intentions that they don't experience mental pain. Okay. Sorry, I meant physical pain. Pardon? Sorry, I meant physical pain. Phys yeah, physical pain. It's because... They, they have purified any kind of, of destructive karma that would ripen as physical pain. Yeah. And they've, so they don't experience that physical pain. Okay. And they don't create any more karma for that. Okay. Because in your book, you said Bumi one joyfully gives body parts. In your um, book, you yeah. joyfully give their body parts. I'm like, hey. yeah. How do they just fully do their body parts with no pain? Yeah. Um, because of training the mind. Yeah. One of the reasons, you know, we have we have physical pain, but you know what makes our physical pain worse is how attached we are to something. So if we're very attached to our body, then the slightest pain, we get really we suffer very much from it because you have just the physical sensation, 
But then the mind suffers when it thinks of the body suffering. So these high-level bodhis and the physical pain, yeah, is it's it has a physical component, but it's also caused by karma. So if you don't create the destructive karma that makes other karma ripen as physical pain, then you don't experience that. But this, this is for people who have very high realizations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's something that we work towards by familiarizing ourselves with virtuous attitudes, virtuous actions, and so on. So is it the direct realization of emptiness that like kind of eradicates the physical pain when they offer their fingers or whatever to people? Yeah, because if they're if they're realizing emptiness, they have no grasping at this body as mine. Mm-hmm. There's no feeling that this is mine. And they also don't grasp the body as having some independent inherent nature they look at the body and they see well actually what is it it's a bunch of vegetable goo Mm -hmm. yeah i mean isn't that what our body is it's a bunch of tissue and bones and muscle yeah that's all it is there's nothing mine about it there's nothing that you know makes it have some important essence so because they have that realization of emptiness, then they, you know, they don't make a big deal about their, their body. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Thanks. Thank it's you. hard to imagine, but <laughs> yeah, as, as you become more familiar with the path, then you can start imagining how that might work. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Another one is about karma and it asks, are your predominant thoughts part of what propels your rebirth in addition to karma? Well, your predominant thoughts don't always remain as thoughts. They usually propel actions, don't they? They could propel mental actions where you're planning upon acting out like from virtuous thoughts, you would be planning a virtuous activity. Yeah, those virtuous thoughts could propel kind speech, timely speech, speech that that creates harmony. Yeah, the kind thoughts can can produce physical actions, generosity, ethical conduct, and so on. Okay. So it isn't, you know, our thoughts and our actions are quite related. You know? Otherwise, if we say, is, our, is it just our predominant thought? Well, for most of us, our pre- predominant thought is sleep. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. So, so this, you know. Are we going to, is our next life just going to be constant sleep? I hope not. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Um, the next one is um, related to the mental and physical suffering of dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. People who have that seem to um, suffer from an inability to reflect on the nature of suffering. Yeah. So how can we help people in that state? Yeah, well, the, the trick is you have to accept, think about that before you the Alzheimer's strikes, yeah? You have to kind of set your motivation. If I, you know, I start getting demented or Alzheimer's, you know, at least I want to be a kind person. Yeah, you can still be a kind person with Alzheimer's, can't you? Yeah, so you set an intention like that. And, and you say, and, you know, they say that some of the scariest part for people with Alzheimer's is when they're just getting it, when they realize that their mind is not functioning properly. But after it progresses for a while, they forget that and they're just in their new reality. But I think if we familiarize ourselves with a kind attitude, then, you know, habits matter. One of my friends, um, his mother had, uh, had, yeah, I think she had Alzheimer's. It wasn't just dementia. And uh, he, she was, he was telling me, that she would go around the old folks' home. You know, if he would come and visit her and bring her some sweets, she would immediately get up and go share the sweets with all of her neighbors. And she would look out for all the other people and make sure they're comfortable and, you know, pat their back. And he said, you know, she was just this kind of person who looked out for others uh, before she got Alzheimer's and that habit just continued on later. Yeah. So, so what would you su suggest for people who, like if, if I don't have Alzheimer's but I want to help somebody who does perhaps? Uh, well, the, the thing that I learned, at least from dealing with my dad, is you just go into their reality. And if they're talking in symbols, I had the most amazing conversation with my dad when we were talking in symbols for things, you know? You just, you just join, you don't say, oh, you know, that you're, you're, you know, that's not true. You're just dreaming that up, you know, forget that. You just join in the conversation and somehow, you know, use the conversation to talk about something, you know, virtuous or something positive that encourages them. Hmm? Yeah. 